Well, this morning we're in Exodus chapter 17. If you have your Bibles, you might turn there or you could look on uh, with me as is printed there in the bulletin before you. Noted at the beginning, we're in an ongoing series in the book of Exodus entitled Delivered. We're in our 21st message in this series and we're in Exodus 17 today. A classic story of God's great provision among the people of Israel, but a story who I think is often told with a more superficial reading than is actually intended. And today I think you see the Lord provide in remarkable ways for His people in ways that I think will encourage greatly uh, we who are many hundreds, even thousands of years removed from the time period of this text, but the truth of this text reverberating eternally all the way down to Middle Tennessee in the 21st century. And so with that hope, let's look together at Exodus 17, beginning in verse 1. This is God's Word. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, encamped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice that you have spoken to us in the word. You've not left us in the wilderness in silence, but you have given us a word that provides for us the clear truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, in this room and uh, through overflow, through live stream, you know there are a number of different places that our souls come now to hear your word. We would ask through the Spirit that you would indeed know all hearts and that you would portion out your grace and the portion of this word in a way that Christ would be made known powerfully in the uniquenesses of the needs and that we would find that our testimony has been that we have not just met with each other today, we've met with the living God and we're forevermore changed. Father, hear that prayer and in the way that only you would know. Would you answer it? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, you've probably had one of those days. You know the kind of days I'm talking about where 
nothing, it seems, goes according to plan. I had one of those days this week, um, a day that I had set aside, well, at least a portion of a day, to get some, some work done. You know, I had sort of calendared it out, which is precious to do and hard to do to begin with. And you have a series of things that you want to get done. And if you're like me, you, you want to get way more done and you think that you can get way more done than you can actually get done. And so you're perpetually disappointed even on your most productive days. So this is the psychosis that I live with. And I entered into this day with just that mindset. And I had gotten the things in order, started early, all, all the things. And, and you know what happens. You have one thing go wrong. And then it's a domino effect for the rest of the day. Like one little thing after another that you're not able to get to. In, in my case, something broke. And, and as I'm there at the shop getting this thing that is broken fixed, I, I'm climbing out of my car. Christy is in the passenger seat. She's my wife, for those of you who haven't met her. And in the back is our daughter, Lila, who's about 20 months old. She's asleep. And so you know what you have to do if you're getting out of the car and you have a baby asleep. You have to be really, really quiet. So I'm opening the door. I'm trying to be quiet. As I'm being quiet, I let the door shut on my thumb, right? And I'm outside the, the, the door. I'm like, oh, you know, like this. I don't want to wake the baby, right? Christy's inside. like, what's wrong with you? Like, what, what happened? I'm like, I something. Go in, so I go into the shop, I'm there for about 10 minutes, I come back out, and I get in the car, I'm like, is it hot to you? Like, is it hot in the, yes, you haven't really been running the air today. And I said, well, yeah, I know it's been a fairly nice day. Well, while you're on, I, I, I turned the air on. I said, it's blowing hot air out of the vent. What did you do to the car while I was gone? And sure enough, I click it on, you know, the light comes on, AC light on compressor not on, no cold air blowing out. And I'm thinking, is this a Job moment? Like what, what is going on right here? Like what shoe is about to fall? And that repetitive nature of calamities, you just go, you know, I'm going back to bed. Like I'm going home and I'm going right to bed. It, you know, it feels a little bit like that if you've been tracing with the people of Israel the last couple of weeks here in Exodus 15, 16, and now 17. It's like one calamity after another. And yet we've seen God's faithfulness in each one of those calamities. He's provided exactly what they needed when they needed. And he has shown himself very faithful to provide. And yet the trials continue to come. And as the trials continue to come, here's just the reality of the human experience. Okay, I'll take one trial. I'll even take two. But if we get to three... We all have a breaking point. And we see the people of Israel actually escalating in Exodus 17. They've already been grumbling. They've been complaining. They've been hopeless that the Lord would provide. But now they're like, enough is to begin a process, shocking as it may seem, to cut themselves off from the Lord. I want you to see in this text two different types of trials. Two different types of trials. The first trial is the trial that the Lord gives. It's the trial that the Lord gives in this text. The second trial is the trial that the Lord receives. 
It's the trial that the Lord receives. Those are the two pieces that we see here in Exodus 17. We want to start with this trial that the Lord gives. It's the kind of trials that we've been seeing, if you've been with us, in our study of the book of Exodus the last several weeks. The people of Israel have now moved from the wilderness of sin, aptly named in this text. It's exactly where they've been, spiritually and all else. They're moving from the wilderness of sin into this place called Rephidim. Now, what's unique about this? is is the word Rephidim literally means resting place. So here the people of Israel have come to the resting place. Now here's what's ironic. It's not restful, right? There's no water in this place. This is not a place where anyone could abide in the wilderness very long. This is the most unrestful resting place that the people of Israel have come to as they are in the midst of dying of thirst. Now, if you and I had come there in the wilderness, we would have just kept moving, right? We would have gone, okay, let's go to the next stop, right? Well, the people of Israel don't actually have that privilege. You see, they're being led every step of the way. In fact, they don't decide where they go. They don't decide when they go. They look for the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And with the leadership of Moses, they go exactly where it is that God has led them. In fact, the text makes it an emphasis of it. Did you see it there in verse 1? The people of Israel move from wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. Right? So the Lord is guiding each and every step of the way. Now here's what that means. It means that Israel has obeyed God and ended up in an unrestful resting place. They have ended up in a wilderness spot from which their basic necessities of life are not met. Now the irony of that is that they followed the Lord and their life began to fall apart. They obeyed his leadership, and they ended up in a wilderness. And as he paused, they paused, and he had them reside in places that were unresidable, if that's a word. They're they're in a place of an unresting rest. And the people of God are experiencing the nature of what it means to live by faith. This is the kind of trials that the Lord brings into our lives, isn't it? You know, sometimes we end up in a wilderness because, well, we took a wrong turn, right? We made bad decisions and we were like, woe is me, I'm in the wilderness. And the fact of the matter is you kind of made your bed, now you're sleeping in it. Like the consequences of your bad decisions got you in the wilderness. Interestingly, in this case, it's been the consequences of their good decision to follow the Lord where he led that got them into this place, which is a fascinating reality about the Christian life. Because many of us enter the Christian life thinking that if we follow the Lord, everything is going to be sunshine and roses. And we ended up in a, in a desert land named resting place with no place to rest. And we thought to ourselves, this is not how I thought the Christian life would work. This is not how I thought it would unfold. And yet, this is the kind of place that the Lord often sends his saints. Think of, think of King David. And King David had already been earmarked as God's next king in Israel. He was first put under King Saul to serve him. He he goes and he plays the lyre, which is kind of like a little guitar, in the presence of King Saul when his soul was um, not at peace and not at rest. And he would go and play, and we know that Saul took it out on him. In fact, tried to kill him at one point. And then at some point became so vengeful that David had to run for his life And he led him into the wilderness, and he lived in the caves. And so you say to yourself, okay, following the Lord, I ended up in a cave in the wilderness, similar to Jesus. 
Uh, Jesus, after his baptism in the opening of the Gospel of Matthew, we see the Holy Spirit drive him, we're told, into the wilderness where he fasts for 40 days, where he's tempted by the evil one and needs the angels to minister to him. He's not there because he did something wrong. He's Jesus. He's there and the followership of the Spirit in preparation for ministry. Now, what's interesting about recognizing that is that knowing that you can be led by the Lord into the wilderness through even your obedience to follow where he leads could be to you this morning deeply comforting or it could be deeply troubling. It could be deeply comforting if you have a deep and abiding trust in the Lord. If you believe in the Lord's goodness, if you believe in the Lord's kindness, his faithfulness and his love, if you believe that he has only bright designs for you, even in the midst of the hardest trials he places upon you, then you'll suddenly find the trials in your life a little lighter. You will actually find peace in Rephidim. You'll find rest where no one else finds rest. Because you know the Lord is with you. And you know that he will provide. You can trust him for it. The people of Israel should in some ways have learned this lesson. Oh yeah, we were hungry last chapter. When we complained, he met our need. Now we're thirsty. Now, you know what we need to do, guys? Let's pause and talk to the Lord and pray and watch him provide. Because we know he will. We've seen his faithfulness. You know, instead, instead of that deeply comforting and peaceful thing, it actually troubles their heart. Because they're not yet founded in faith. You know what essentially there is happening? Oh, look, he's really slick. Like he provided for us with food. We thought he was going to kill us of hunger. Apparently he's going to kill us with thirst. See, I knew I should have never trusted him. But you see the difference of that heart? That's not a heart founded on grace and faith and in truth. That's a heart cynically looking at the realities that are before you and believing that God has malevolent intent. Sometimes when we realize that God has led us in the wilderness, it comforts our heart because we know that his bright designs are there to bring about our own growth in his glory. Other times when we're weak and wavering in faith, we look at the trials he brings into our lives and we think only negative thoughts about him and his purposes and what he's up to. It could be deeply troubling and deep or deeply comforting depending on the nature of the heart. It's clear with the people of Israel, isn't it, in verse 3, what they thought. Notice how it's, how it's written. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Well, clearly they've already decided the intention of Moses and the Lord. They're not querying about it. They know that the Lord is here to kill them. Now, if you read that and you said to yourself, hmm, that sounds awfully familiar to last week's chapter if you were here. It's exactly the same verse, except swap hunger and thirst. It's the exact same, except one massive difference. Now, I just want to surprise you with this. There's one massive difference between the people of Exodus 16 and the people of Exodus 17. And that is the people of Exodus 17 got up that morning and they found bread all over the ground. And then they stuffed their face with God's provision and before they wiped the crumbs off their face, they complained about thirst. You catching what I'm putting down? It's worse than it was in the last chapter because not only had they not seen the provision of the Lord, now they're consuming the provision of the Lord and still complaining. 
And it did not even dawn on them that the Lord was up to good things to call them to cry out to him, to trust him, and to look for him with regards to his provision. You see, what's happening with the people of Israel is they aren't convinced of God's love and care yet. They aren't willing to trust him. And thus they haven't gained the wisdom of spiritual insight that would be theirs in the trial. They haven't yet gained that insight because their dependence upon him is weak. Do you know, often in our own lives when we get to those challenging turns in the road and we're wondering where bread and water comes from, we're wondering where bills are going to be paid or how certain circumstances are going to be worked out, Where our hearts are often assured is in two ways. When we look at the promises of God in the Word and we look back on our lives and we see His faithfulness. When we look in those two directions, when we see the promises of His Word and we see His faithfulness in in the past, we begin to recognize that He's up to something. I can trust Him with what it is that's before me. In fact, this week when I'm getting stuff fixed and getting a a finger shutting the door and losing the air conditioner all in 15 minutes. When, when that happened and all fell, it was interesting. I was able to actually not get too upset. That's rare, friends, because I was in this text. I was thinking about these things. My mind and my heart were renewed. In the promises of the Lord, I sensed my need instead of saying, you know what, I give up and become fighting mad about it. It gave me the chance to say, Lord, what are you up to? Apparently you want to teach me what I'm going to teach. It's just like you to do that. And that actually gave me peace. Do you know what it said to me? It said to me, he's with me. It said to me, I can trust him. And I can see that he loves me. And he only has good things for me. Do you know, this is the kind of trial that the Lord gives. And a variety of us in this room, we know some of them in the midst of our congregation right now are some significant trials. But all of us in every pew in this room, there are hidden trials. There are deep sadnesses. There are past traumas that we are living with. And one of the questions that the Lord is posing to us today is, can we trust him with the trials he gives? Do we believe that he will redeem them? You may or may not see that here in time and space and history. You may close your eyes with loose ends, as I think probably most of us will over certain twists and turns in our lives. But when you open up your eyes in eternity, know that your testimony will be, he did everything right. He did everything right. These are the trials that the Lord gives. But I want you to see secondly in here that there is the trial that the Lord receives. You know, we use the word trial in a variety of ways, don't we? I've been using it this morning in the, in the language of difficulty or hardship that's suffering in our life. That's one way to use the word trial. But companies, I get their emails, will often set forward a A proposal, an advertising proposal that you could buy this product and use it for a trial period, right? For for a certain duration of time, you know, 30 days or your money back guaranteed, right? That kind of commercial is what you kind of have in your mind here. And so you get the product and you hope that it measures up to all of your wishes and you'll keep it. But if not, on the 29th day, you're going to return that thing 
so that you can get your money back. Well, in some sense, the people of Israel have actually been relating to the Lord in that second form of trial. They're like, okay, we're great with you leading us out of Egypt, but we're going to watch you and see if this turns out the way that we want it to turn out. This is trial period. And we're getting close to the end of trial period here in Exodus 17. And the verdict among the people is, we want our money back. We want our money back. We're done with what it is that you're doing. And in fact, it's raising that kind of angst in the lives of the people, which has led them to the kind of trial they're actually trying to execute here. And it's the most common way that we use the word. It's a legal proceeding. It's a literal trial that's going on within the text of Acts 17 or Exodus 17. Here in this text, we see the people of Israel actually adjudicating what scholars like to call a covenant lawsuit. They're literally claiming that God has not upheld his end of the bargain. And they've come to bring a suit. They're going to sue him. Now, how do we, how, where do we see that? Well, if you'll look with me at verse 2, it says that the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Now, that word quarrel is really key in this text. And you wouldn't immediately know it in your English translations because you think quarrel and you think, you know, what you and your spouse had this morning on the way to church. Right? It was this verbal sparring or spat that, that, you, that you've had. But that's, that's not the term in the fullness of what it means here in the Hebrew. And in fact, it's often used in the language of justice. So, for instance, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, uh, Saul is charged by the Lord to go and attack the Amalekites. And we're told in, in 1 Samuel chapter 15 that Saul lays in wait... For the Amalekites, the, the, the soldiers are laying in wait. They're like you know, a crouching tiger looking ready to pounce at the moment of attack. And they've come at the command of the Lord. This war that's about to take place, this battle that's about to ensue, the Lord has commanded it. Why? Because the Amalekites have done evil to the Israelites. And this is a form of justice for what it is that they had done to the people of God. And he has called Saul to help adjudicate the justice. And as he lies in wait, the word there is the same word for quarrel. So it has this idea of hostility, of even potential attack, but attack that's not ferocious in terms of its wild mob violence. No, it's the kind of attack that comes as an execution of justice. It's a legal act. It's meant to set things at right. Now we see something of that here in the text because you see what Moses says in verse 4. What am I to do with this people? And we're wondering the same thing as we're reading through. He says, they are almost ready to stone me. Now that should trigger something. Stoning was not something mob violence did. Stoning was the common way to execute a condemned criminal who has the death penalty upon them. This is a special form of killing. This is not just any form of killing. It's certainly not even the most, most um, efficient form of killing that, that could have been uh, given to uh, the people of Israel with regarding to Moses. But what Moses is saying here is that the people, and they're ready to stone me. They're ready to lay the death penalty upon me and execute me through stoning. And so as you're reading that the people of God here are, are quarreling with Moses, this is not some light disappointment. This is not some 
you know, can I speak to your manager? I'd like to fill out a comment card about the bad service I've had. You know, that's not this moment, right? In Exodus 17, this is like, I'm suing you, we're going to court. It's a very, very different thing. And what Moses tells us in here in verse 7 is that your quarrel is not with me. Your quarrel is with the Lord. You know, this is for Moses, if we could put it this way. This is a don't shoot the messenger moment, right? I'm here as his representative doing his bidding. He's the one who's the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. I'm just here doing his bidding and his beckoning. And so what we see the people of Israel do is they are now willing to put the Lord himself through his representative Moses on trial, saying to him, you haven't upheld your end of the bargain. Boy, what a change this has been. You see, in Exodus chapter 15, we're told that the Lord tested the people of Israel. In Exodus 16, we're told that the Lord tested the people of Israel. Do you know what we see here in Exodus 17? That the people are testing the Lord. There's a role reversal that has happened between chapter 16 and 17. The people of Israel once knew they were under God. You know what they've done now? They put God under them. They've begun, they have decided, as the way C.S. Lewis would put it, they've decided to put God in the dock, to put him on the stand, to see if he has fulfilled his, his end of the bargain. Do you know, and the reason they're bringing this charge, obviously, is because they're so thirsty. He had promised to bring them to the promised land. If you look back in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush narrative, where he calls Moses into the work of, of leading the people of Israel out of Egypt to the promised land. Uh, he was the one who was going to lead them all the way to the end of their salvation, out of Egypt to the promised land. Well, here they are in the wilderness about to die of thirst. Clearly, he has not upheld his end of the bargain. We have a case against the Lord, and we're going to adjudicate it before we die. And amazingly, the Lord has already in some ways seeded this within his own promises in the Word. I just want to call on your Bible knowledge for a second. You remember that section in... Genesis chapter 15, if you know something of the text of the early parts of Genesis, you'll remember God made a covenant with Abraham. And when he made a covenant with Abraham, he also instituted a covenant ceremony. It's a way for God to be able to vividly describe his commitment to Abraham and his family. He said, listen, I'm going to make of you a great nation. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed through you. Your, your genera- the generations are going to go on for thousands of generations. Your seed are going to be beyond number. And I'm going to lead you to a place that I will show you this great promised land. Those are the promises to Abraham. And here's what God says. He says, listen, if I want to so make this vivid to you. I want you to cut open these animals, spread them apart. And this, this division among the animals, this violent picture that's here before, I am going to pass through with a smoking pot and a flaming torch. That's going to be my presence. Notice you hear a little bit of pillar of cloud and pillar of fire in that. Presence of God passing through the people, passing through the pieces that Abraham had, had laid out before the Lord. He was, the Lord was bringing on himself what we call a maledictory oath. That, that's a fancy way of saying he was calling down curses upon himself if he doesn't fulfill the covenant. If I don't do what it is that I've said I'm going to do, 
you have the right to do to me what's been done to these animals. It's a vivid display of the kind of judgment that would fall upon the Lord in his promises should he not uphold the end of the bargain. Now, here's what's interesting. In that covenant ceremony, it would always be true that the inferior would walk through the pieces, not the superior. Because the superior calls the shots. The inferior is the one who's under his authority. But what happened with God in Genesis chapter 15? The superior walked through the pieces. You know what that means? That means that God committed not just to uphold his end of the bargain. He also committed to uphold the people's end of the bargain. I'm not only going to fulfill what I promised to you. I'm going to fulfill what you're supposed to do. Because you're going to fail at doing what it is I've called you to do. So I'm going to have to do what it is I've called you to do. And if I don't do what it is that you have been called to do, the same maledictory oath is going to fall upon me. The same destruction is going to fall upon me. You know what's interesting about this text? Is that the Lord actually submits himself to that. You see, there's this court proceeding all the way through the text. In verse 5, God says to Moses, I want you to bring together the elders. Who are the elders? Those who make the decisions in the cases. I want you to pass before the people a formal language for witnesses. I want them all to see it. I want you to take in your hand the staff of which I gave to you, of which you struck the Nile. The staff that's a picture of God's judgment. The very tool that the Lord used to humble the gods of Egypt and bring the plagues and destroy the army of Egypt as they tried to cross the Red Sea. I want you to take that in your hand and I want you to walk with me and I want you to walk with me all the way. Did you notice it? I want you to walk with me, verse 6, all the way to the rock at Horeb. Now for some of you, because, well, you're biblical scholars, you remember that Horeb was the exact place of the burning bush. In Exodus chapter 3, it's the place where God made his initial promises to Moses. He said, let's go back to the place where I first spoke my promises to you, Moses. And I want you to remember the staff I gave you there. And I charged you to redeem my people. Let's go back to the place where the promises began with you. And when I'm there, notice what the language of the text is in verse 6. I'm going to get on the rock. I'm going to climb, as it were, the rock of Horeb. The place where I had revealed myself to you. And when I climb upon that rock, I want you to raise the rod of judgment. And I want you to strike the rock. Now the imagery is very clear, isn't it? God himself has come to the rock of Horeb. The place where he had revealed to Moses himself chapters earlier. He comes back to the place of his promises because they have declared that he has been unfaithful. He has betrayed them. He has forsaken them. And so he has to go on trial. He goes on trial. Not because he has failed, but because who has failed? The people have failed. They've betrayed They've fallen short. They will not keep his commands. He realizes in this moment, there's no amount of training that's going to get these people ready 
for what it is that's ahead. I have got to actually receive their punishment for them. And as Moses' representative, he receives the strike of the rod of God at Mount Horeb. And not surprisingly, what do we see pours out from the judgment of God? A stream of living water. The provision of the people of Israel and their salvation in the wilderness. Now this should remind you of something from, I don't know, the Gospels. Jesus, as he passes before Pilate and Herod, and then Pilate again, and then a crowd of people, where Pilate says to him, I find no guilt in this man, and yet the crowd comes forth with the cry, crucify him, crucify him. And Jesus, submitting himself to the kangaroo court, yet through the providence of God's orchestration and wisdom, he goes from that verdict, a verdict of betrayal, a verdict of blasphemy, a verdict of insurrection laid at his feet, trumped up charges that were not true, he receives as he goes to the cross in order to receive what? The blow of God's judgment and wrath. His, he was charged with the fullness of our sin. To his account, the rod of God's judgment comes down upon him. And in coming down upon him and through his atoning death, what flows out from the very foot of the cross? But that this rock is Christ. He is the living water from which salvation flows. Already in Exodus chapter 17, we're seeing the outline in technicolor of the beauty of the gospel. We're seeing the Lord show himself that he is the one who will uphold not just his end of the bargain, but he will uphold his people's end of the bargain. That he will take their sin upon him. And he will remove their sin as far as the east is from the west. And he will provide for them a stream of living water. When Jesus was talking to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, did he not tell her that he had water of which this world could not quench her thirst, but the water which he would give to her would quench her thirst forever. The waters of salvation, the waters that would lead to a satisfaction, a contentment, a joy, a faith in following the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see, this picture is showing us the glory of the gospel. It's letting you know today that Christ, if you are in him, has already paid for your sin. The record against you has been completely expunged. The Lord upholds in his righteousness the full charge of your sin against himself. And in response, what does he provide for you? Everything you need. The living water, the grace, the righteousness. To be able to live with the joy of the Lord as your strength. To know his redemption is full and complete. To be able to walk through life not trying to earn his love and his goodness. But to walk through life in response to knowing that the love and the goodness of Christ is already yours by faith. Do you see that's where you find peace in an unpeaceful place. That's where you find rest in a place that has no water. When you have the living water inside of you. Jesus says that when we trust in him it will be as if there's a fountain of living water welling up within us. 
continually satisfying us of the riches of his grace. Do you find that each time that you're in the presence of the Lord as we worship him? When the scales freshly fall yet again from your eyes and you can see again that God, even in the midst of your trials, is doing an amazing wonder in your life. That he's not out to get you. He's out to bless you. He's, He's not out to harm you. He's out to sanctify you. To get you ready to live in perfect communion with him for all time. You see, there was never going to be enough work that you and I could do to get ready for the kind of righteousness that we need. We needed someone to do it in our place. And that's why today, if you're in in faith in Christ today and the fullness of the merits of Jesus are yours, you have every reason to hope and to have joy. Because your status has been locked away. There's nothing that can take it. The fullness of who Christ is has been charged to your account. The credentials and the resume of your life spiritually has all of what Christ has accomplished on it. And there's no way that that can be taken from you. You live every day with the wealth of that reality at your disposal. And yet how often have we forgotten the living water that constantly quenches that thirst? And have we looked at God with our, with our fists shaking That he's not done for us what it is that we would wish. And we haven't even wiped the crumbs from the face from eating the manna of his last provision. Do you know what's amazing is that's true for you and me this day. And that God saw every grumble and complaint this week. He saw every time where subtly in your heart you were adjudicating a case against him. Thinking you could run your life better than he could. He saw it all. All the ugliness of it. And you know what he's trying to say to you? He loves you still. He loves you still. He's removed that from you. He's growing you more into his likeness. He's not holding that against you. He has fulfilled the record. Grace is supreme. That's what he's telling you. Now in that good news, live it. Live it with the joy of the Lord as your strength. Live it listening to the voice of the Lord and following him with hope. Anticipating the day when all indeed will be made right. And all the legal proceedings lead you to a glorification of which the final verdict is given. And we know once and for all the children of the living God in the righteousness of Jesus. With the hope of the Lord as your strength today, rejoice in him and worship him. For this gospel is true. Father in heaven, we would pray that you would indeed break wide open our hearts today to receive the message of your truth implanted. With the glory of who Christ is and what it is that he has done, freshly fall like dew from heaven upon our hearts, revitalizing us in our faith and trust of you. When the wilderness trials of our pilgrim life come even in upon us this next week, would you, would you give us the freedom of soul to reflex back into the memory of what it is that you've done in Christ and stir up the affections for him once again by the power of the Spirit. That we might even laugh and have rest in the midst of a wilderness wandering where water is scant. And we wait upon God for provision. And we look with expectation for his answered prayers. Lord, I think of a few answered prayers just this week. And I see your goodness in them. Lord, I know that you are with us. Bite of it.
and find that here in the joy of the gospel is where life is always to be lived. Lord, more of this we pray by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.